Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program of the Commonwealth Club. My name is Mina Kim. I'm the evening news anchor at KQED and also the Friday host of KQED's program forum. And I am so pleased to be moderating today's program called Divergent Minds Thriving in Adulthood, which is hosted by the Grown Ups Forum of the Commonwealth Club. And I am really excited to be able to talk with Janara Nirenberg. I've been wanting to talk with her for so long about this book, Divergent Mind, Thriving in a World That Wasn't Designed for You, which really, you can feel her passion. It's palpable in the book in terms of her desire to really add to what she really sees as the relatively limited research that's been done on neurodivergence in women. Janara, she's a reporter for UC Berkeley Greater Good Science Center and for the Garrison Institute. She's founder of the Neurodiversity Project and now author. And Janara Nirenberg, welcome. Thank you so much, Mina. I'm so happy to be here with you and also been really looking forward to it. Yes, I know we were talking a little bit ago about how, you know, book book releases are so carefully timed and yours just happened to come out in the midst of, an, of a pandemic, in the midst of really this country grappling with its history of racism and racial inequality. And uh, I was just wondering, you know, when you were talking about the right time to release this book, I mean, did it ever in, in your mind, did you ever think that this could be what you, what you had to face? Yeah, I mean, it's such a good question and obviously so memorable. And I think, you know, um, in the neurodiversity community, you know, um, we talk a lot about what it's like um, as a neurodivergent person um, on a daily basis anyways to kind of um, live differently, function differently, largely preferring solitude um, and stillness and reflection and things like that. So in terms of daily life impact, you know, um, it's been okay to manage. And uh, with the recent sort of um, uprising and protests, um, it's a particular passion of mine, lifelong um, work and investment in, in that kind of solidarity. So that has been bringing out a different side, I would say, of me in terms of, uh, of jumping in and looking at advocacy from, from my own family as well. Well, I want to talk about you. And one of the things that I think was so powerful about you sharing the story of your awakening in terms of neurodiversity was was just these personal experiences of seeing your symptoms, which were, as you said, labeled originally as anxiety. You had this moment when you discovered that they actually were considered autistic or ADHD. And I was wondering when that happened for you. Yeah, this happened... um... It was about four years ago. I'm 36 now, so I was 32. You know, I was um, a young parent. Um, I had been a reporter abroad for for many years, uh, which suited my my temperament well. Um, we had recently been back in the U.S., and I found it just really difficult actually to integrate back. That was sort of like a first hardship, first challenge. And then seeing the amount of um, what I refer to as like task switching, the amount of having to go from, you know, hyper-focusing on a, on a research article or an essay or an interview to the dishes and the laundry on top of just the amount of um, sensory input here, I found like the, the traffic lights and things like that. Um, and I honestly, I was on like Facebook and, and these articles started popping up in my feed about women being missed in certain research. And, you know, I have a background in public health. I, I went to Harvard for grad school. So a few things just started coming together for me in terms of what I was going through as an individual and then um, integrating some of my scientific and professional interests as a, as a journalist. And so what you were talking about, the transition back, I mean, what does that feeling of sensory overload, how does it present itself? What does it really feel like? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, So, I mean, I would first say, I would say everyone's different, right? Um, For me, and I've had a lot of this since I was a kid, but, you know, I didn't quite know what to do with it. And I think this is a common story. Um, 
first I'll say I've always been prone to, to migraines actually, and, and headaches. Um, and I could never pinpoint where they were coming from. Um, I've always been sensitive to light and sound, um, um, things like seeing violence on TV and things like that. And, and that was relatively common in my, my family actually. And when we, we would talk about that kind of sensitivity, but, um, at, which is common for other people as I got older and the amount of, um, sort of tasks that were required of me as an adult, just to, to function as a partner, as a parent, as someone who was, who was working, it, it just kind of grows and grows and gets overwhelming. Right. Um, so, you know, you're asking like, what does it feel like? So for me, um, if I'm driving in my car, um, within like a few traffic lights, I will start to get like a little bit of like headache symptoms. That's, that's one thing that happens for me. Um, I often need to take breaks and conversations. I, I can't talk about anything too intense for, for too long. Um, and then there's sort of the executive functioning side of, of these challenges, which is, um, Again, I do really well when I can hyper-focus, which is, as a journalist, you know, is, is really helpful, right? You just get really into a subject and um, you jump into these rabbit holes and, um, and I love that. But when I have to sort of like divide up my time and do something, you know, it's extremely difficult to go in and out of that place. Like, okay, five minutes, oh, we need you for this. You know, it, it's, uh, we, we call it like transition time or transition anxiety and that kind of thing. Um, so I have all of that and, it, and it's, it, it might look different for me as, you know, an adult woman. And we talk about these things a lot in the context of, of children. So for adult women, it's just um, not as, as well known and understood. And that's, that's part of where the book came from. Yeah. I mean, why do you think it wasn't until you were in your early thirties and through your own process of self-discovery that you realized this, that it wasn't something that, that people realized when you were younger? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, so um, in the book, you know, I, I get into the to the background, sort of like the history of mental health research and how women have been pathologized um, throughout history. You know, so you know, years ago, um, women were often labeled with hysteria, and and I think anxiety is actually the modern equivalent of hysteria. I mean, everyone gets slapped with that label, right? And everyone gets. Um, prescribed, you know, anti-anxiety meds or antidepressants. I mean, I think it's like one in four in, in the U.S. And um, I'm not sure what the breakdown is within that number in terms of, of men and women. So there, there are larger structural reasons, you know, to, to begin with. Um, and then for me in my own life as an individual, I think, like I said, sensitivity in general kind of runs um, in my family. So I don't know if like it wasn't really pathologized. You know, I grew up in a really loving, open-minded family in San Francisco, you know, and um, I guess who I was, was, was really embraced. And so, and because I did have this knack for like hyper-focusing and I was, I was very curious. Um, and so, yeah, I think, so there's that, right? Like it wasn't totally, picked up on it as like this clear thing. And, and I did have anxiety and I had a lot of intensity and I was very strongly affected by things. But again, I was just kind of accepted and embraced. Um, and so, and then, you know, when in my teens and twenties though, I did have, um, I would say gradually challenges built up, um, you know, in the areas of depression and anxiety, like something that would look like kind of typical, I guess. Um, and then in college, you know, when I started seeing a therapist more regularly to try to figure out why I was having certain reactions to things, um, again, all I heard was, you know, was anxiety. And there, I think they're just doctors and therapists are not um, informed on, on a lot of this latest research. So these deeper layers of, of sensory challenges are not probed. You know, I always refer to it as like an onion. Um, you know, if we peel away and we're just getting at, you know, anxiety, depression. Um, it's really kind of just staying on the outside, right? But on a deeper level, there's like sensory stuff, neurological differences. Um, and also with this book, I really wanted to move away from 
the pathology paradigm and, and even like Freudian era thinking. And um, even, I mean, trauma research is really big right now, but it's, it's not the whole picture. I mean, we, you know, humans come into this world with differently wired nervous systems. So it's important to just kind of acknowledge that, that difference. The other thing that I was really struck by was your description of masking, that you also tried really hard to blend in. What did that do? How did that affect you? Yeah, I think, um, I think first of all, like I think many women who start to figure this stuff out later, they, it's, it's kind of a hindsight thing. Like, I think we don't consciously realize we're doing it, right? I think everyone in society to some extent has to Put on certain hats right to function in different environments but for some of us that act takes on a much bigger role i mean not the act but the um this need to sort of perform to an extent in society that that everyone does but for, for some of us it's it's more intense right so um i think growing up i i just i always thought there was like a normal like i just that's how i thought i just always thought that there was some kind of normal i always felt outside of it again i was often embraced for being kind of different and so it was fun i mean i was really into theater and um and so but as i got older especially i think like when you become a parent you know when i became a parent i felt like there's you know, there's just like this role that you take on. And, and when you're around other parents and you feel like you need to be like kind of proper and conservative and just kind of like this way of like operating. Um, and so over time, what happened for me was just realizing the disconnect that I felt. I was like, I, I just do not relate to these people. And, you know, just, and so, um, I think that's where that kind of loneliness can, can often come in. There's like a loneliness when you realize you're not really honoring yourself or your natural inclinations and the way, the things that you might like to talk about. Um, you know, I talk about in the book, um, Divergent Mind, that I've always just been drawn to inner life and talking about sort of deeper subjects with people. And, um, you know, in some context, that's like kind of inappropriate. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't relate to that. Like I'm kind of always ready to, to go to that place. So anyways, long story short, um, yeah, I think when, when that disconnect is there and when you, when those layers of depression and anxiety start to build up, that's kind of when that huge wake up comes. And when you're like, okay, like, I don't, I don't want this anymore. And it becomes important to look at like who you really are and, and just be yourself in the world. You know, I have to ask this audience question that's come in because it really is on point when you were talking about how you realized it when you became a mom as well, to some extent, that that was a pretty eye-opening experience for you. This question is, should parents of children or teens diagnosed with ADHD or autism be looking at their own history or symptoms? Yes. That would be most helpful for parents to know. Yeah. Yes, 100%. That is a very good question. I get asked that a lot. And it's really common um, in with almost everyone that I interviewed though, actually the way that they figured out their own stuff was because their child got diagnosed first. Like that's just a very common pathway. Um, so yeah, I would say, um, you know, if you know your, your child has some kind of label, then it, it would be a good idea either to look at your own history or that of your of your family members. And I should also say, and I clearly talk about this in the book, that I did not pursue formal diagnosis. So I don't I also don't think that anyone needs to have like a formal diagnosis. And that's for many reasons, right? Um, we know that the system is very gender biased. Um, and many times someone will walk into a clinic and they know so much more than the so-called expert. And so it's actually a really traumatizing experience. Um, and in the neurodiversity commu community, there's a, it's pretty well acknowledged that um, for, those, for those of us like myself who do years and years of research on this stuff, we know our own selves better you know, than walking into a doctor's office. So I guess I would say that as well, that um, for many people, it's healing just to like have this information and kind of know how to work with it. And everyone can be, you know, free to make their own decision. If they, if they need that label, it can be really helpful and important um, in terms of requesting accommodations at school or at work. 
in my situation, I work from home and my family is very understanding about my sensory needs. So, you know, that was enough for me. Do you think there's a cost associated with learning this later, much later in life, say once you become a parent? Um, is there a cost? I, I think that there are kind of pros and cons in a way. Um, I think that for many people, it's in some ways it's freeing to not have a label growing up, right? Because you you kind of move around in the world and, and learn things on your own and figure out um, how things work, you know? Um, that being said, uh, for many people, they if this realization comes later in life, um, it usually comes from some kind of crisis. So then I guess in hindsight, it's like, oh, could that crisis have been prevented? you know, if they had this information sooner. So I guess, yeah, I think it's, there's pros and cons either way. I'd like to take a moment to just talk a little bit about sensitivity, because I think it's, it's, it's something that we're frequently described as being, particularly women, I think, right? It's a, it's a label, it's a framing that has been put on us that one of the things that I really learned a lot about in your book was just how important it is to reframe our understanding of what sensitivity really is. Could you describe um, your relationship to sensitivity? Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, so I I was always a very sensitive kid um, and I was always described as sensitive. Like that was the first thing that people would would say about me, like kind of at the tip of people's tongues, you know, um, Janara, like, oh yeah, she's so sensitive. And that like in every way, right? I was, strong, I was strongly affected by things. I was also a very deep feeler, right? So again, I was in theater. Um, I became a writer. You know, my, my favorite thing is, you know, interviewing folks and hearing their stories. So sensitivity is, um, you know, a, a really wonderful trait in that way. Um, and I think um, in my life, sensitivity, um, well, so are you, are you asking about like just um, how it's informed my life or? I think it's a couple things. One is that the realization that because it is something that we're often described as being, how do you know when you reach the point that it actually qualifies as neurodivergence? Right, yeah, that's a good question. So yeah, in the book, I talk about like five neurodivergences that have sensitivity in common. So, um, you know, the first one is the trait of high sensitivity, which is the highly sensitive person, which is HSP for short. This is a term that Elaine Aaron has coined um, back in the 90s. And it's just kind of a general umbrella trait describing like a personality trait of, of, of high sensitivity, sensitivity to sound, light, noise, um, feelings, not liking to rush around, things like that. Um, and then I talk about um, autism and ADHD, and I talk about uh, synesthesia, which is the crossing of the senses, and I focus on mirror touch synesthesia, which has been well-documented um, and is actually when a person uh, perceives somebody else's um, experiences or sensations as their own. Um, uh, and then I talk about SPD, which is sensory processing disorder, which um, is not like officially in the DSM, but has been well-researched, particularly by uh, the Star Institute in, in Colorado. And that is a little bit more about the, like, the physical manifestation of sensitivity, like sensitivity to um, certain materials um, and smells and textures, or um, it's also like very much about the body and having issues with organization and um, balance and things like that. So anyways, in the book, I look at these five traits because sensitivity features so prominently in, in all of these descriptions. And yeah, I think sensitivity is just this amazing Thing, right in our lives and and it's, we just we we neglect it we think we have to get really tough and aggressive and um we just live in such a fast hostile sort of um daily environment you know and I'm just like why can't we flip that around like isn't it the more sensitive of us who should be like 
leading this world, right? So, you know, that's kind of the direction that the book goes in, but I, I wanted to lay the, the scientific foundation for this. And, and um, so, yeah, that, that's how I explored sensitivity. And I really think that, that your objective of being able to recognize actually the power, the benefit of, of having neurodivergent traits really comes through and how, how silly and damaging it can be to judge it, uh, which is why you must have spent a lot of time thinking about the, appro- the appropriateness of the term neurodivergent or divergent mind, just because of your sensitivity to language. Why did that word end up feeling right to you? Um, neurodivergent. Why did it feel, you mean, as opposed to using the language of like disorder? Is that? Yeah, exactly. Like why did that, did that word seem to encompass what feels like your broader objective of it not being something that is judged as, as abnormal, as less than or different in a, in a more negative way? And thank you for asking, by the way, to, to clarify. I appreciate that. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I think, um, well, I think, so neurodiversity um, is sort of like a framework and it's a movement. Um, you know, it was first coined by sociologist Judy Singer in the 90s in Australia. And then it kind of, um, the idea spread amongst many different groups, you know, um, that have that had been pathologized. And... There's sort of a vocabulary, um, Nick Walker, who is local, he's an autistic scholar and, you know, he really lays out these terms well. Um, you know, so we have neurodiversity is just sort of this acknowledgement of, um, we all have different brain makeups and it's a move away from pathologizing as normal and abnormal. Um, and then, so then neurodivergent would be the term, um, that a person could use instead of saying, you know, oh, I have this mental illness or I have this disorder. Um, it would just be a way in a way to kind of differentiate, like, and it's more empowering, right? It's, it's affirming. Um, and then we have other terms, right? Like, so in, again, instead of saying something like illness or disorder, we would say, you know, what is the neurodivergence? Um, and then, of course, we have the term neurotypical, which just kind of describes someone who would identify as you know, without neurodivergence. Um, so I found this language and this framing incredibly um, powerful. And I, I found that it really aligned with my own philosophy and thinking. In fact, I had been on my own thinking about a framework like this. And I was using the words, um, I was using this phrase, um, like temperament rights, like, you know, someone's access or sort of, um, like uh, what could they, what they could request in the name of their own temperament differences, and then I started, you know, googling around to see if anyone else was kind of talking about this, and that's when I stumbled on the term neurodiversity, and I found um, Steve Silberman's work, and I found Nick Walker's work, and that's kind of how it all happened. Um, but again, I think it also goes back to just how I grew up, like growing up in a really like accepting family and an accepting um, sort of school environment. You know, I, I, I went to SOTA, which is School of the Arts in San Francisco. You know, so I have a lot of pride about growing up in the city with, with so many different kinds of kids. And so I just found that neurodiversity matched my own sort of values. And um, the last thing I'll say on this is actually that, you know, in, in a lot of other cultures, um, having... A, um, any kind of mental difference is often seen as a gift actually. So that was very powerful for me as well. And that really resonated and was also part of my journey actually. And, you know, really just seeing the difference in how we frame uh, difference. How do you think we're doing in terms of language? Are we getting better at using language that, that does do that, that does treat, uh, neurodiversity or divergent minds as gifts? Um, You mean like, how are we doing in the U.S. or? Yes, in society-wise, like how are we doing in terms of our progress towards that? Do you think that, uh, are you seeing significant progress or do you feel like we still have a long way to go? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, um, 
I mean, there has been a lot of effort, I would say, um, especially, you know, here in the Bay Area, like in the tech community and all the big companies here, a lot of them have, you know, these um, neurodiversity working groups and things like that. Um, but I mean, that's just like such a small drop, of course, you know, um, and a lot of those initiatives, I would say, have um, been utilized by men who are white, where these things are um, very uh, recognizable, you know, so I think there's still there's a lot of uh, people of color, a lot of women whose experiences are still going under the radar, not being acknowledged, um, or they don't feel comfortable talking about these things, because it might it might be a little bit more hidden, a little bit more, you know, invisible, like we use this term invisible disabilities. Um, so I think it's just like there's pockets where efforts are being made. Um, I think that with, you know, sort of like our millennial generation and social media, and even the way a lot of pop culture stars are really open about their own like mental health diagnoses, I would say particularly with um, something like bipolar or depression, you know, we're hearing lots of people opening up about these things, you know, from Kanye West to Selena Gomez, um, uh, you know, a while back, you know, Catherine Zeta-Jones opened up about her bipolar. Um, so yeah, I, I would say that we still have a long way to go um, I'm, I'm happy that efforts are being made. Um, but I think, you know, I'm, I'm interested in sort of the deeper narratives that, that we hold as a society, you know, in terms of how we think about, uh, difference to begin with. Um, and yeah, and, and really challenging sort of like social norms that we think are just, um, normal, right? <laughs> Yes, that, that thread is really clear throughout your work. And I, I definitely want to talk a little bit later about um, one of your new projects, the Interracial Project, which again, this thread, I think, runs through very deeply. I did want to get back to an audience question, which was wondering if you had thoughts about how to handle when you are feeling sync, out of sync with your environment, dorm, roommates, family feels too loud and chaotic, when you're prone to headaches and anxiety? And it's a great question because there is a whole section in your book that really does talk about techniques that you can use when you are feeling this out of sync way. So what are your thoughts for this person? Yeah, it's a great question. Thank you. Um, there, I mean, there's, there's, there's different things. And again, it's going to be different for every person. Um, so, I mean, a really easy thing that you can do on your own is just like, getting outside actually and taking like a, a little walk, you know, for five to 10 minutes that can really help regulate your nervous system. Um, you know, of course there's like the fresh air, there's greenery, things like that. So that's just like a great go-to place. So if you notice that you're starting to experience overwhelm, you know, that the more you can kind of train yourself like that to cue, then, then, you know, the earlier you're going to kind of catch that experience, right? Um, it's also important to communicate to the people around you um, so that people understand what you're going through. I mean, probably 10 times a day in my own house, I have to ask my family members to turn down the volume of music, you know, and, and they just, they know that, you know, and <laughs> um, so having your needs understood and accepted and, and, and respected is, is really important. Um, I recommend, um, if it's possible, something like occupational therapy, which is really interesting. Um, I was a gymnast as a kid and, you know, I talk about in the book when I walked into a, an occupational therapy clinic for the first time, um, where they mostly see kids, right? They don't often see adults. Um, and I was just like, oh, this, this makes sense for me because you walk in and there's these gym mats all over and these like interesting swings and fabrics hanging from everywhere. Um, but something like that, even just like two sessions is really helpful because they, um, your, your clinician will help you understand what your body is seeking and craving, you know, in those moments of overwhelm and how to kind of get back to center. Um, so I recommend that. And, um, then there's, you know, more straightforward things that some people rely on, like noise canceling headphones and things like that. Um, 
and and the book gets into sort of a few other suggestions. Can I ask you about a suggestion that I was really struck by when I read it? And it was, don't feel guilty when you start to feel better. What did you mean by that? Yeah, thanks for for noticing that. Well, I think that um, for many of us who go through this journey, right, um, in the beginning, um, there is often this just like huge awakening, right? And we kind of jump into this and we're really into it and we're like, you know, oh my gosh, and like what happened? And and there's some amount of anger, you know, in the beginning. And um, um, especially if you do really get into this whole framework and this movement kind of, you know. Um, you mean so, anger at, uh, forgive me, anger at, at not knowing, not having given it a name, do you mean, or not knowing sooner or? Yeah, I think like just um, that, that, that you, that you could go so long in your own life with like, n- like no experts, like helping you or, you know, in like not pointing this out. And like, especially if you've tried many things, I think that's very frustrating, you know? So, um, there's anger about that. Um, and then there's the anger of just like, oh, wow. Like, yeah, society doesn't really handle mental differences that well. And, you know, we have a long way to go. So there's that kind of anger. There's that movement, the passion, Um, and then, you know, as you get deeper into this and you kind of start to revise things in your life, it gets, it gets more integrated, right? So then you just find ways to kind of manage your days differently and your, your family starts to figure it out. Your friends start to accommodate you in different ways. And so, okay, like there's change in my life and things like that. And then, you know, hopefully, ideally, if you're able to kind of pivot, um, you do start to feel better, right? You're like, okay, I have this information. I understand it's a whole new lens. Um, you know, oh, I'm doing well and I'm, I'm happy. Right. And so what I meant when I said that was that really like, um, it's okay if there's less of that, like fight, you know, cause in the beginning it, it, it feels like a fight cause you feel like, oh my gosh, um, like what I was just detailing, like just that there's this kind of like fight against the system and, you know, why did this happen and how come I didn't know this sooner and that kind of thing. So, um, um, I think, um, what I also said in that list where that, that quote appears is that, um, is that we, we want to integrate all of these realizations, right? And then when we start to feel good, like it's it's really important to share that with the world. It, it's really important to share that we can be different and function differently and still be joyful creatures and and be happy, right? Like it it's not just because it's it's not some kind of doom situation, right? Like you find out something and um, things are never going to work out. It, does that make sense? It's like. So if I'm understanding you correctly, I think you're saying that there's a guilt associated with if you're not fighting, then maybe you're giving up the fight to some extent or you're somehow stepped back a little bit. Is that what you meant when? Yeah. Or, um, yeah, something like that. Um, yeah, just, or it's really actually just like giving you permission in a way. Cause like, again, there's this, there's a whole like neurodiversity movement that a lot of people kind of jump into like pushing for change and things like that. And so, um, I think that for a person's like sort of journey of growth, you know, like you see this with college students, right. Who get really into like an aspect of their identity and stuff like that. And then as they get older, it kind of just changes. They're like, they're just more sure they're self-assured in who they are. I, I think that's what I'm getting at. And then, so it's like, it's good for people to see neurodivergent people just out in the world, like as they are. And um, yeah. I see. Well, this person wants to know, why did you leave out males? I'm a neurodivergent male and believe that at least 40 to 50% of neurodivergents are males. Did you leave out males, Janar? Um well, the, the focus of this book is definitely on women. I wanted to center women's narratives um, because women have been really neglected in, in the research um, and, and very poorly misunderstood. And that's why we're seeing uh, so many women being late diagnosed um, as autistic or ADHD. 
Um, you know, they're often referred to as like the lost generation of women because these things were not properly recognized and in, you know, depression, shame, low self-esteem just kind of took over. Um, and, um, so there, there's been a lot of other work on, on men. So, um, for me, it was, you know, very important to, to center women's narratives for, for this book. It was kind of what I was getting at when I had asked the question earlier about if you feel like there was a cost associated with women not knowing because mm -hmm. of this concept of the lost generation that you bring up. I mean, what are some of the losses? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it just, it's so sad to think about the number of women out there in the world, you know, um, who are really struggling and who um, don't have the information available to them. They don't have these other lenses, right? They just think like, oh God, like something's wrong with me or, you know, I can't do this and that, or why am I always getting this kind of feedback at work or in my relationships or with my friends or, you know, questioning self-doubt, like, oh, is this normal and, and things like that. And um, so, you know, that is definitely a loss. Like, you know, I, I don't want, you know, neurodivergent women out there to be, to, to be going through that. Um, and so, yeah, so for, I would say, yes, for, for as long as those kinds of narratives are persisting in women's minds and yes, that, that is a loss and that's a cost. Um, of course, you know, when they do get access to this information and kind of have these kind of wake ups, like, you know, it's just amazing. And I get emails all the time, you know, today, yesterday, it's just so amazing to hear from people when they, um, either when they find my book or they're just interested in these topics, that what a huge aha moment it is and what a huge wake up it is for them um, to have an entirely different conception of, of who they are, why their life has been the way it's been, um, the different direction that they want to go in moving forward. Um, yeah, so. Yes, I think it, it speaks to just also when you're fully able to embrace who you are and be out there in the world, as you were saying, also what, what you contribute to the world, which is um, something that you emphasize as well, and how people understanding how to make space for uh, people who are neurodivergent also improves everybody's lives to some extent. Um, I do, though, want to to get to this question of somebody who writes, sorry, but what exactly is neurodivergent? So maybe we can spend a little time just defining it um, some more. Yeah. So um, again, with this kind of like uh, new vocabulary, new terminology, uh, neurodiversity is this term that just refers to um, acknowledging that, you know, all humans have different uh, brain makeups, mental makeups. Um, it's often compared to something like biodiversity, right? Um, that this, um, and that this is very important for, for us as a human species. Um, so neurodivergent really is just um, a term that um, we would use for anyone who kind of diverges from um, what we think of as the norm in our society or what is kind of standard expected of, of, of a of, of an adult um, in terms of what they can do, what they can manage, what their abilities are. Um, so it's an all-encompassing term. It, you know, it does not just mean autism. Um, it, it's very commonly used in, in the autistic community, but um, it, it really applies to, like I said, you know, bipolar, um, OCD, uh, um, autism, ADHD, dyslexia. Dyslexia is another community where neurodiversity is talked about a lot. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what neurodivergent means. And I really, going back to the question from the person who um, asked about males and leaving out males, one of the things that it makes me think of is also the benefits broadly, as you say, of exploring what it means in terms of how this presents in women and what can be done when we understand um, such a large proportion of our population is probably to some degree neurodivergent. Could you talk a little bit about contributions that you've seen as we've understood this and made space for it in terms of either 
design or even informing our our health system, things like that. Sure. Um, so, yeah, one of the interviews that I did in the book um, was with Sarah Seeger, who um, is a professor at MIT, um, who um, was actually not um, formally diagnosed at first, and I think she did seek it out eventually, but it was like her professor's wife who was like, oh, like, you know, yes, you for sure, like, have Asperger's, like, you're on the autistic spectrum, and she was like, huh, oh, really, and then she kind of looked back and was like, oh, yeah, like, that makes sense, and so, so she's recently written more about it, um, and, um, you know, so she, you know, she's a MacArthur Genius Grant, um, and winner, and, um, you know, for her, you know, she said she, what she told me in the book, you know, she just, she always felt drawn to like looking at the stars and, and just being drawn to, to space and thinking about it. And that, and that really suited her. And so, um, you know, she's having a huge impact, you know, within her area of research, um, uh, searching for exoplanets. And um, that's obviously like, you know, like one like amazing example. Um, I would say um, my friend, uh, Margot Joss, who's featured in the book, um, who I've, gotten to know recently through through this research um she um she was identified with adhd at 29 um and she started uh yahoo's first um uh, employee resources group for neurodiversity um she's now with verizon but you know when she started this group at her office um i think she said like she like ended up speaking to like 8,000 people or something about this. And then, and slowly like one by one, all these really senior people started coming out about having ADHD and having OCD. And so, you know, it's just so amazing to see like one person take that first step, right? And opening up about who they are in their inner life. And it's so freeing to let other people do the same, right? Then we all just feel more real and more relaxed with one another. Um, so obviously, like, she's had a huge impact. Um, and, you know, and then in terms of looking at, like, history, um, again, this is better documented when it comes to men. Um, but, you know, some some even think that someone like Le Corbusier, who's a world-renowned um, architect and designer, some have speculated that he might be on the autism spectrum. He had a really strong preference for... Um, very minimalist design and um you know some would say that that's kind of in line with like the autistic sensibility um and there are several other figures of course temple grandin is a very well-known um person um steve silverman who wrote neuro tribes um detailed a couple of other um historical figures you know even someone like albert einstein is thought to have had adhd so um you know, we we know that people who think differently can do really well when they are just like kind of given the freedom to do so, right? It, it becomes really tricky when these different thinkers are sort of expected to adhere to some kind of social norm with their working space and, and things like that. So um, yeah, and that's yeah something that I talk about a lot in the book is just, you know, the importance of uh, respecting that people work differently and then they can really be innovative and, and get really creative. Well, uh, this viewer asks, can you say something about shame and neurodivergence? Yeah, that's such a good question. Thank you for asking that. Um, shame, you know, shame is such a big issue. I think shame is one of those things that can, it's kind of twofold, right? Like shame often, is what will lead someone to, to try to figure out more, right? Like they can't figure out like, oh, like what's going on with me? Let's say like before they figure out, you know, that they are neurodivergent and what's, re what's really going on. Um, these, these feelings of depression or low self-esteem can kind of propel someone to figure out like, where is this coming from, you know? Um, so that's like one aspect of it. Now, if it's somebody who um, is aware of their neurodivergence already and, and maybe experiencing shame as a result, or maybe they've 
been um, made to feel shame from how other people are are treating them. Um, you know, it is it is so important to to find people who who can be supportive, who can be accepting. Um, you know, there was a study that came out a couple years ago showing that um, acceptance for from oneself and from society has such a big impact on reducing um, anxiety and depression. And so um, as, as sensitive individuals, we do need to think carefully about who we are choosing to spend time with, you know, who our, who our colleagues are, um, who we are giving energy to in our, in our friendships and that kind of thing. Um, so, and I think it is important to um, reach out and, and even find people like yourself. You know, that was a big part of my process um, when I, um, was first getting curious about all this. I just actually just put up a, a Facebook event. Um, and you know, it was like a neurodiversity gathering. It was like 30 people showed up and we just, from all different backgrounds. And we just had this kind of conversation about what it was like to kind of be different in the world. And, and that initiative grew and became the neurodiversity project where we have speakers and authors come in. Um, but that that being able to connect and be open with people removes that layer of shame. You know, it just kind of removes the pathology of it. You you feel normal in a sense, right? Because you're around people who are like you. Um, so yeah, community can be can be very healing. When you talk about um, growing up, I can feel a lot of affection for having grown up in San Francisco. I wonder what role you feel like growing up in San Francisco has played in your ability to be on your journey, <laughs> to yes. embrace where you're at. Mina, you're gonna make me cry, I'm serious. <laughs> yes, when you, I'm, gosh, Mina is a really good interview. Um, when you did your interview with Joe Talbot and Jimmy Fails, um, <laughs> about the last black man in San Francisco, I was so struck by it because they're San Francisco natives and the way they describe their experience and their affection for San Francisco and, and what it used to be, you know, really resonated. And I was literally like weeping in my car um, because I think I hadn't really, I hadn't heard many other people um, talk about it in, in so long. You know, it was kind of like revisiting, revisiting childhood but um, yes, San Francisco uh, was a very um, magical place to grow up in, I would say. Like, you know, this is like the 90s. Um, it, you know, it was, it was so accepting. I, I went to public schools. Um, uh, we lived, you know, in the heart of the city. You know, my, my neighbors, you know, upstairs, downstairs, and in, in the back were from from all walks of life and you know I've, I've written about this before I've written essays on it um but you know to to be in an immersed uh in a in a setting where people are so different you know my my downstairs neighbor was a a black circus artist you know and he would be like juggling in, in the side yard and um you know there was a hairdresser in the back and, and my my neighbors were um you know an interracial gay couple um you know i took the i took muni to school every day you know i would run into um the school secretary um she was black she was very protective of my sister and i um and that you know we would be on the bus out into to the sunset out in the outer avenues where our classmates were you know i think our school was like 70 percent asian american so it was just like this daily flow of just like difference and then that that was normal to me right like that was normal and i didn't realize how how different that was like you know for for most people um but yeah, I think that was just extremely formative, you know, and made me feel um, just free, made me feel really free, you know? And um, so I think, yeah, as I got older and seeing that, you know, most of the world was not like that and um, that there were, there were certain ways that I was somehow supposed to try to be or something like that, that became very painful. Um, so, so yeah, that's what you're 
sensing and picking up on, yes, I have a huge, huge affection. In that sense of freedom, I mean, it makes me think back to the earlier question we got from the audience member that was asking about, about children and teens diagnosed and also asked what would be most helpful for parents to know. I mean, it sounds like it sounds like one of one of the key ways to, I don't know, parent or is to create an environment where your kids really truly feel free to be who they are and, and celebrate difference. I mean, are there are there things that parents can do to create that? <laughs> I imagine it's also sort of challenging in this environment too when we're we're kind of confined to our homes more. Yeah, yeah. Um so yeah, I mean I think definitely at home it's incredibly important to um really nurture like what you know what the a kid's sort of inclination seem to be right in terms of what their maybe what their special interests are or you know or and, and just having a lot of fun together I think that that's so important um but I I mean I do think like a school community plays a, a big role right because that is where the kid is going to be um every day picking up on cues and getting sort of that feedback loop about what is what is okay or what's valued and that kind of thing so um as much as possible where a school community can be um open and supportive um and and also um you know diverse too in terms of like their viewpoints and how they um encourage diversity of thought um, I think that's really important. Um, yeah, and and my book and my research really focuses on on adults, which is interesting because you know we do have a lot of literature on on kids. And what I'm hearing from my readers is that it, it is so helpful because it's giving parents a um, sort of like a look into the future, like a glimpse, you know, about how they can better guide their kids, and especially if like if they're teenagers, sort of that transition to adulthood. Um, so yeah, it's it's definitely mm. yeah, it's it's a really interesting point. Um, this person asks, you mentioned that diagnosis is not always necessary. What do you mean by that? Especially asking regarding kids and teens. Yeah, well, I think um, um, again, it it really depends, right, on on like the situation. So, um, you know, I've heard from some parents where you know they they might sense some things in their kids, like something's different. Maybe they've chatted with a teacher about it or maybe even a doctor, but you know, if they feel like um, they can, they can work with it, they can support the kid. Um, they don't necessarily feel like their kid would benefit from like sort of like a special tailored services or accommodations. Then, you know, I have heard from parents just kind of, just kind of leaving it at that, like just watching, you know, and, um, and to me, I mean, that makes sense, right? Like we have to, we have to stop and think about what diagnosis even means, right? And I talked about this in the book that, you know, these, these really are human, like man-made um, categories, right? You know, we have, well, our, you know, it's not us. I mean, we were sort of, we've inherited what, you know, um, what sort of doctors and researchers in the past have decided to categorize and, and kind of, you know, lump together, okay, this set of, um, uh, this set of um, symptoms, you know, need to be in this column and this one needs to be in that one. Um, but they're not necessarily like these um, static things, right? And that's why you also see lots of kids and adults with multiple diagnoses or changing diagnoses. So it's just kind of a, it's good to keep that in mind, you know? Um, so yeah, so I think it just, it just depends on, on the individual and what they really need. Um, again, if it's an adult who needs to request accommodations, you know, at university, like, you know, that makes perfect sense or, or for a kid in their classroom. Yeah, totally makes sense. And then there are just some other situations where, um, it might just not be really urgent. So that, that's really what I, what I mean when I say that. Well, this person writes, how do you address the tension between wanting to honor neurodiversity versus some people needing accommodations for autism in the workplace or educational settings? Yeah, 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 and I talk about that a lot in the book as well. And um, my approach is to really 
honor all perspectives. Like, I don't think there's like one right way to do it. I think it totally depends on the individual. And I think that they're, you know, part of the neurodiversity movement or even something like the, the mad pride movement um, is like, affirming like, yes, I have this and like, and I feel a lot of pride about it, you know? So I don't really think that there needs to be that tension. I think that, um, you know, people use different terms, people, you know, some people refer to whatever they have as a difference or a disability or a disorder. Um, and I, I don't, I don't necessarily think there's like one right way. I think it's just whatever is right for that person or, you know, for that family and for that particular context. Um, so I just, I think it's important for each person to be on their own journey though. And, and, and sort of um, have some agency in it and, and to um, check in with them, their selves about what feels, what, what feels right, you know? Um, so, yeah. Well, we just have a few minutes left and I, I do want you to tell us about the interracial project, this next project that you're working on. Yeah, thank you. I'm so excited about it. Um, yeah, so the interracial project um, is something that uh, kind of emerged over a period of time. And, um, you know, your questions earlier kind of um, helped tell the story just um, uh, my own family is interracial. Um, uh, you know, well, in my own case, I'm my my husband is from Nepal, and you know, we're raising our our biracial child, and we've spent a lot of time in in both countries. Um, my my stepmom is Iranian. Um, my brother's wife is from Japan. Um, uh, we have members in our family from from Mexico. So again, like um, this was kind of a norm for me growing up, and um, so. I've just been reflecting recently over the period of months, like how uh, this this narrative is not really seen in the public sphere very much, right? You know, I mean, we talk about race a lot, right, as a society, um, but we haven't really gotten to a place where we um, are comfortable with the intimate details of it, right? You know, so interracial families, interracial couples, you know sharing our daily lives together, doing laundry, um, taking trips, you know, things like that. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I reached out to some other writers and creatives. And uh, so we're on Instagram at Interracial Project. And actually tomorrow at 1 p.m. we go live. Um, I, I'm interviewing Roxanne Gay and her partner, Debbie Millman. Um, and so the idea is to kind of just put interracial life and family and friendship and love more at the center. Um, and we'll have different hosts and collaborators. Um, I have one friend um, near Minneapolis, um, you know, he's a black father, he's raising two biracial children and he'll be running a series of interviews with uh, young adults and how they straddle their biracial identity. Um, and yeah, we, you know, we want more people to get involved and, and follow us there on Instagram. Um, and, and we'll see just like how it grows. But, um, I, I think people can see how a lot of these themes fit together, you know, and just kind of, um, telling new stories, telling different stories and reframing narratives and, um, how we think, how we talk about these topics in pop culture. Um, so yeah, that's the interracial project. Yeah. And if you had to think about or characterize what your ultimate goal is, because so much of my sense of Eugenar is that you're on a quest you know, to some extent, you know? And so the way all of these things to come together, what would be your ultimate vision? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, I think um, I, I, I'm very interested in getting to like the deeper heart of things. Um, and as someone who, you know, is a member of the media, as, you know, as a journalist, um, I, I'm just so interested in language and, and the words that we use to uh, frame our conceptions of ourselves and, and, and of each other. And um, I think that media narrative stories are, are so powerful, right, in, in um, in helping us all like shift gears, right? So um, I think that's sort of the overarching umbrella is like, you know, how do we do that? How do we reframe narratives 
so that everyone feels, um, you know, freer and, and more loving and more connected in this world. I think that's definitely an overarching narrative. And um, with, with these two projects, with the neurodiversity project and the interracial project, um, you know, I, I love to see them both grow even more. Um, definitely more books coming up. Um, um, I, I'd like to also get into, um, you know, probably some documentary and film and media just so that these issues are even more front and center for people in different mediums. That That's really important to me. Um, yeah. So then let our viewers know how they can contact you and where they can get your book. Yes. Okay. So yeah, you can find me on, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Neurodiversity Project, Interracial Project. Um, my website is divergentlit.com. Feel free to reach out to me and um, you can find the book everywhere. Um, if you go to bookshop.org, they're great because they support independent booksellers. Um, here in the Bay Area, it's sold at Copperfields, Books Inc., Book Passage, um, and a bunch of other places. So thank you all so much. Yeah, congratulations, Janara, on the book. And yes, thanks everyone for joining us. Thank you, Janara, for speaking with us. And that concludes our virtual program at the Commonwealth Club. Thank you for watching. I'm Nina Kim. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.